The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody, from this uh, studio here in New York City. It's a very sort of cloudy late spring day, and uh, welcome back to our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic is one that we have talked about in a generic sense over several over the course of several programs, and we are dealing with forgeries in the antiquities trade, and it's a topic that we've lightly talked about uh, basically in connection with illicit antiquities trading, and I think we're going to be probing more deeply into what you could consider essentially a 21st century, manif- 21st century manifestation of that phenomenon. And my guest is uh, Dr. Charles Stanish, who is the director of the Kotzen Institute of Archaeology and a professor of anthropology at UCLA. He specializes in the development of complex political and economic systems in the pre-modern world. He has worked extensively throughout South America, and his theoretical perspective focuses on the roles that trade, war, and labor play in the evolution of human cooperation and society. He holds the Lloyd Kotzen Chair at the University of Chicago, uh, at the University of California, Los Angeles. Sorry for the slip. We share a, a University of Chicago pedigree, I guess. And he is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States. Charles, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, sir. And I'd like to ask you from the outset um, how you got interested in the entire question of forgery, illicit antiquities, and that sort of thing from uh, your background in uh, basically doing more theoretical aspects of uh, South American archaeology and prehistory. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I spent uh, almost 30 years now you know, in South America, and you can't walk across the landscape in the Andes without seeing, you know, massive looting going on of archaeological sites. And uh, I used to be a museum curator in Chicago at the Field Museum of Natural History, and so I was also very interested in the ethics of the uh, antiquities trade. And uh, I also study economic anthropology, so I 
my my theoretical background is you know in economics and and economics in non-Western societies. So having said all that, I, I realized that the eBay phenomenon. Uh, initially, we thought it was going to be this really disaster for for archaeology because everybody could go chip off a piece of the Great Wall of China or dig up some potsherd somewhere and create this mass market in antiquities. But what happened by around the year 2000 was something something quite counterintuitive, which was that the that that the forgeries were actually overwhelming the 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 real objects on uh, on the online auction sites and i found this to be counterintuitive and really quite fascinating so i just started to investigate it more which led me into all these uh, different avenues uh, of the antiquities trade so is this one of the more unanticipated trends that the internet uh, sort of brought about it's i mean obviously at around that time the sort of wild west aspect of the internet mm-hmm. was sort of running rampant in many areas and and obviously with uh, little regulation and that's still the case mm-hmm. today there is obviously sort of an unanticipated phenomenon here and and you're pinpointing one of the one of the ones that sort of followed, I guess, in the wake of the illicit antiquities uh, situation at a time when there was uh, sort of a conscience about sort of uh, returning third world artifacts from large, larger museums to host nations, and now all of a sudden we have a new phenomenon. Yeah, we do. It, it, it is counterintuitive, and it, it actually made the Freakonomics blog, uh, also the wow. University of Chicago pedigree. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's not something you would really, you, know, you would say, well, no, of course. I mean, you know, it's a marketplace. You, you put your stuff on the market, and the, it creates a, a much larger uh, set of consumers. Therefore, the, the prices should go down and the amount should go up. But that's not what's happening. And the reason it's not happening is eminently logical. It makes a lot of sense. And what it gets down to is it's just a lot cheaper for these people in developing countries, uh, what we call source countries, to manufacture fakes and sell them as real than it is to go out and spend you know weeks digging with the possibility of finding something or not finding something valuable. So the low-end market is being flooded. So in uh, <clears throat> my further studies, what I did is I looked at the, the coin, coin collecting, numismatics. And uh, if you read between the lines on the blogs and you look at the collectors and the dealers' uh, websites, uh, they are frantic because the vast majority of uh, North American collectible coins on the market and the online market is, is fake. And they come from China. I was just in Shanghai. I went into the market and I bought some beautiful 1877 U.S. trade dollar pieces. They're particularly popular to be manufactured in China because uh, they were they were created in the United States for trade with the uh, with a lot of countries, including China. So it, it looks beautiful. I went to the guy. I said, how much? He said, $100. I said, I'll give you five. He says, make it six. I said, we got a deal, right? So I bought, <laughs> you know, $28 worth of silver for six bucks, right? And it, it looks really good. So the, 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 the collection of numismatics, of coins, has really taken a huge hit, really taken a huge hit. Uh, the, the Chinese, in fact, even uh, f- 
fake the slabs that you put the coins in, and they even calculate the weights of the slabs and the coins to give you a perfectly accurate weight of the of the of the coin and the slab. And so, it, it's a huge problem. So antiquities are following that same uh, market logic. I guess the real issue here is is that this is very, very much, or traditionally very much, a high end kind of trading block, if you will. It's it's something that I suspect uh, what you might call honor amongst thieves, where uh, mm-hmm. the mid- the middlemen were the ones that were really enriched. You had obviously in third world world countries where this proliferates. You had uh, you know. People who lived in the area, nomads, if you're in the Middle East, uh, were collecting or discovering these fa- these uh, artifacts, and then there's a chain of middle people, and then it started to get marketed into museums, and then, of course, uh, uh, well, uh, well, well endowed foundations and rich people, and that's been going on for a really long time. So I imagine this must have been a real shock to people who are in that world. Yeah, and and you hit on a. A very insightful point, which is that it's not that much of a transition, in particularly in a developing country, to go from very low-end market, you know, junk to mid-range and even high-range uh, antiquities. And remember that the people who made the antiquities, the real ones in the past, uh, were working under what we would consider to be rather primitive technological conditions. Well, that's exactly what a, a cottage industry can do. You go to the coast of Peru, you you have some clay, you have some pots, and you have a skilled craftsman, and they're basically reproducing the kind of uh, technology that was used to make the pots in the first place. But, but But, you know, I mean... We, we've seen this, obviously. People who are in archaeology have seen this for a long time. And and one of the claims that you have, especially in people who deal with, with really old lithic industries, is that no matter how hard you try, no matter how skilled you are, say, as a contemporary felt napper, you will never really replicate, say, the technology of ma- manufacturing a flute on a Clovis point. How does that vary once you get into higher-end sort of antiquity like pottery creation? And, and the types of very, very sophisticated uh, statuary that you're talking about. And I'm assuming you've worked in, in Peru and, and work with those kinds of elements of statuary and pottery that really are very high end. Yeah, yeah the premise is false. Uh, the collectors and the dealers, uh, and, and the archaeologists for that matter, we like to think that we're, we're smarter uh, than the, the forgers. <laughs> We like to think that they're, uh, well, they're not educated. They can't possibly get to that level. It's, it's, it's false. It's absolutely wrong. Right. Uh, in fact, in my article in, uh, in archaeology, I have a picture of a, a moche pot uh, reproduction. And one blogger wrote in, a dealer, and he said, you know, well, sure, I suppose uh, an incredibly skilled artist who made this piece is, you know, comes along once in a blue moon, but, you know, no peasant from the outback is going to come in and make this. Well, in fact, the guy who made that piece was a farmer from the outback who came in, worked 20 years on an archaeological site, and mm. trained himself to be one of the greatest artists of contemporary Peru, and he happens to make absolutely exquisite forgeries. So, so that's false. That premise is false. Uh, but is he not an exception? Or no, I mean, no. are there... Okay, okay. So, yeah, so I mean, also. you could kid yourself, but I see them every day. Uh, one, one man or woman in a workshop can put out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these pieces. 
it's it's because it, boche in particular is mold made, right? So you make the right mold and you can manufacture these. Uh, the, the thing is that we always have wanted to convince ourselves that we are a little bit smarter than they are, and right. they have been laughing at us all the way to the uh, temple in the fifth century BC. They have been manufacturing. Uh, uh, you know, replicas and fakes, you know, since the beginning of fancy objects. So, no, I disagree with that. I also would go so far as to say about 20% of major museum collections are not real. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, they're good. They're good, and they play off our ego, and they play off of our, our Western sense of superiority all the time. And so who who is taking the big hit here? Well, the people taking the big, the big, the biggest, it's increasing the risk in the marketplace substantially. Uh, so the people taking the big hit are the people who pay the most money for a piece that they're they're been told absolutely is authentic. And that would be, does it? And obviously, it goes into supposedly the most sophisticated aspects, uh, sophisticated elements of society, into the museums mm-hmm. themselves. Not to mention problem guessing houses like Sotheby's and places like that that are also getting victimized by this. Sure, I mean, look, the Getty Museum here in LA is one of the richest institutions on the planet, cultural institutions on the planet, and they got most likely fooled for eight million bucks on the Kuros, right? Mm-hmm. So if they can get fooled with this vast array of scientific analyses and art historians, uh, you know, imagine what you or I going into a store. Um, it, it's, it, you, we, we cannot underestimate the talent of a hungry man or woman who has uh, the ability to make some money. They, you know, they just are good. They are really, really good. And getting better from what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Almost every, uh, I was just reading a piece on, on West African pieces from Mali. Uh, the first figurines that came out in the late 70s were, were authentic. They ran out in the early 80s, and they just have been manufacturing fakes ever since, and they still continue to flood the market. They're just now is- not, yeah. Is there any particular region or any particular type of forgery that sort of masks itself better than any other, or is that, uh, is, or is it sort of universal? The, the best in creating the finest masterpieces are probably the Bulgarians and the Hungarians, but the Bulgarians are famous. They do the uh, the, the uh, Scythian bronzes and. They do all these different uh, exquisite pieces from the uh, Bronze Age societies in the old world. They're really good at that. The Chinese are the masters of mass marketing. They can produce 1,000 pieces of porcelain a day that they call. You know, well, that's a tradition. Right? Yeah, it's a great tradition. And, you know, in Chinese culture, doesn't the, the people they don't understand the Western obsession with quote authenticity. Right. They really are, frankly, a tad more sophisticated than we are, because they look at an object. An object, and they say, "Wow, that's a beautiful object." Yeah? And so, what's the difference if it's if it's an exact reproduction or not? It's a beautiful object. Right. But we have this weird mystical um, a relationship to the object uh, and the, the idea that someone in the past actually touched it, and we want to touch what that person touched. There, there, it, it's a it's a different way of looking at it. Sure. And we'll be back with our special guest, Dr. Charles Stanish, after these words. Don't go away. 
opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are discussing forgeries and the increasing sophistication of forgers and the repercussions that this industry, which is apparently a cottage industry, the ramifications that it has for the market of illicit trade. And uh, my guest is Dr. Charles Stanish, and during the break we were discussing uh, the fact that different cultures have certainly different mental templates vis-a-vis uh, authenticity, the significance of artifacts, and and uh, you were saying, uh, if I'm if I'm correct, that the Chinese, for example, don't place that kind of premium on beauty and 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 wonderful handiwork, but uh, the antiquity of it, but they just admire the uh, the handiwork itself. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what that has, what impacts that may have on the market because they're so influential now. Sure. Yeah, I don't want to oversimplify, and it's a large country of a billion plus people, but I think generally speaking, uh, most of the uh, Chinese scholars and art historians and, and just regular folks who I have interacted with uh, are, are a little bit mystified at the Western uh, obsession with the antiquity of it. Uh, they would say the object in and of itself is a beautiful work of art, and if it's a perfect reproduction of the ancient one, like kind of what's what's the difference? It, it it should give you the same aesthetic effect. Whereas we in the West seem to be really obsessed with a, almost a mystical uh, attachment to the past, or perhaps. You know, I suppose if you were a good Marxist scholar, you would say, you know, we just have this innate desire to acquire, you know, other people's stuff. And I'm not <laughs> sure, you know, right? Uh, of course. Yeah. 
So it's it's different, and 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 the different uh, in 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 China, the idea of uh, manufacturing beautiful pieces of art that happened to be in in the school of Han Dynasty or Shang Dynasty, and in, in making these and selling these as beautiful pieces of art is is simply considered fine. There's no real social. Uh, you know, uh, social issue with that. Whereas in the United States, we really make this very, very rigid distinction between, you know, authentic and non-authentic. Is it? Do you think it? And and I, I'm going to diverge into into a more socio-anthropological perspective here. Is it because they have grown up with these traditions for so many generations, growing up in the countryside, sort of continuing the traditions of let's say artisans and people who produce from the earth and do pottery? Is that is that it, or is it something else? Mm, you know, honestly, I I can't say that. I'm I'm not really an expert in. Chinese culture, but uh, but uh, but I do think that anthropologists have taught us that there are people react to materiality in in very different ways, and different cultures do that. The exact reasons why I'm, I, I I really can't say. Yeah, but uh, I guess yeah. in one of the questions I. I'd like to proceed with, and this is something that I think is obviously going to be a big issue. So, do the do do the people, do the experts who can distinguish between the real thing and the forgeries? Uh, there's obviously going to be a higher level of expertise that they're going to have to develop, and and what's happening with that? Or are, are we seeing uh, very much more sophisticated technology that's coming into play because of this? Yeah, great question. The um the the problem is that, that the forgers are always ahead of the experts by at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's like crime or something. You know, yeah, the, uh, yeah. But but it is but, crime. It is crime. Yeah. But we catch up. I mean, the experts could catch up using different kinds of methodologies. The example I love to use. I think this is an absolutely fascinating example, and this should give every collector of illegal and unethical <laughs> antiquities pause. Yeah. Is a wine, you know, forged wine. Okay. Uh, people, yeah. You know, I mean, I think there have been more bottles of Thomas Jefferson's wine sold than you know he could have drunk in like six lifetimes. Uh, <laughs> if you forge a bottle of wine past nineteen mid nineteen fifties after the first hydrogen bomb, that will have in it an element called cesium that only oh, existed with the explosion of the hydrogen bomb. And it went everywhere on Earth, and it got into, you know, the food chain, right? So the half-life of cesium is like 75 years, which means it goes on for, you know, a couple hundred years. So you can get a bottle of wine that was allegedly made in 1788. It has the name of somebody on it. And you can put this in a machine now without taking it out of the model, and you can see if it has cesium in it. And you can immediately say this is a forgery. Now, this is a technology that nobody ever would have expected we could have had, you know, prior to, you know, a few years ago. So, what happens is the, the the great risk that collectors take who buy illegal or unprovenienced antiquities is that what is considered a sure thing today can become a fake tomorrow with a new technology. Of course. It's like the guys, who, you know, people who committed murders in the 1970s never dreaming that there would be DNA analysis. You know? So it comes along and suddenly the standard shifts. So, uh, so the people doing the technology of detections of fakes have been getting better all the time and that will continue to grow for a long period of time. The subjective uh, 
you know, the person who has a great eye, you see this popping up more and more and more on dealers' websites. And it says, you have to work with this for 20 or 30 years. You have to develop a feel. Uh, it, it, is, it is the eye. The eye of the, uh, the dealer, can, of the connoisseur can pick this up. Well, that happens to be very self-serving for a dealer, right? <laughs> because the sure. only test is, well, it's, it is because I say it so. And if, you're, if your subjective feeling uh, says it's authentic, you, you make a commission of $100,000. And if your subjective feeling says it's not, then you don't make anything. And so there tends to be a very strong economic incentive to feel toward the authentic, you know, authentic side. So it's a big issue. It's a, it's a huge issue, and uh, it's one that gets people really, really angry. But it's a fascinating one. So that that kind of uh, documentation and that type of dependability and reliance on the so-called expert, I guess, is going to fade out. I mean, it, it reminds me of the the uh, detection of art forgeries where they're starting to look at pigmentation and the types of paints, say, that Rembrandt's used, uh, and they couldn't possibly have been replicated even by a 19th century forger, right? Uh, exactly. When you get to that point, and one of the points that I was fascinated by in looking at this piece that you wrote was you actually had somebody who had extensive experience in archaeology and had done some excavations and was able to take sort of old, old carbon, stick it in, in, in I guess, what was it, pottery, and, and he was able to basically defy the radiocarbon test. Yeah, what, what they do is, that's that's precisely right. What what they do is the workmen and where I worked in Lake Titicaca in in Peru, mm-hmm. is they would collect the the garbage, the midden we call it in archaeology that had uh, straw and grass in it from the archaeological sites. So this is three thousand year old straw and carbonized straw, and then they right. would mix it in their clay. They would bake it up just enough before they bake out the uh, bake out the carbon and. Well, uh, you have a grass-tempered uh, a vessel with really, really old carbon in it. That's an old trick. And it's an old trick already, huh? Yeah. You have people, yeah, as soon as they figure out carbon-14 dating, the forgers are out there sticking it in. They, they now, in, in, in Italy, now you can, you, can radiate, you can radiate pottery, and you can screw up the thermoluminescence. So they, the Chinese are famous for that. They radiate all their pottery. They get, they have it really well, well, uh, you know, timed to get just the right amount of radiation in there to give you a, a TL test. I'm sorry, thermoluminescence test that puts it back the amount of years you wanted to put it back. Really? Yeah, even TL. Now, we're getting a little technical here, and and so bear with us. We'll talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about this because thermoluminescence dating is a a technique that's been around for a long time, but it basically is effectively saying you can sort of freeze the light and freeze the magnetic fields in in some other cases, and you you can authenticate based on that calibration. And you're saying that that's being used now, too? And how how long has that been going on? About ten to fifteen years. That My we know goodness! Of. So yeah. they really aren't that far behind uh, the cutting edge of of the the innovation itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of forges will take potsherds on the ground, and they'll take the base of a vessel, right. let's say, right. and then they will forge the entire rest of it. But they will have an ancient piece at the bottom. Well, where do we do the TL testing from the bottom, right? Because you don't put, you don't drill, 
and the body of the nice artistic piece. So they know where we go and test with the TL, and they they put in um, they they put in fragments, and then they call it slightly restored is right. the term. And yep, there you go. <laughs> and so, what is, what is the scale of this kind of forgery? Say you're you're familiar with the, the uh, South American world, and where there's obviously tremendous amount of of uh, pottery and and manufacture in places like Peru and Bolivia. Uh, how how extensive is it over there? Uh, it, it's it's a lot. That's a lot worse than, or a lot better, from some perspective. Depending on the than perspective, what people yeah. would say. Yeah, I mean it's out there. I mean I don't want to downplay the the tragedy of looting that continues every day, and, and you know we're getting sites destroyed. But you know they are manufacturing cuneiform tablets that allegedly come out from of Iraq with our soldiers. Uh, there are forged tablets. There are forged. Mesopotamian antiquities, there are forged proving antiquities, and whatever hits the style of the day. Like, for instance, in the 1960s, the erotic pottery from ancient Peru, the Moche people, mm-hmm. suddenly there was a plethora of erotic pottery. Right? And then, whatever hits the market, whatever, you know, Indus Valley figurines were all the rage in the late 70s and early 80s, and right. they responded to the market need by manufacturing tons and tons of these things. And so, uh, what are those things? Uh, shop teas are called, I guess, uh, in, right. in Egypt. There are just gazillions of those. And, and the oil lamps. If you go to Jerusalem and you go into sure. many of these shops and you buy an authentic Neolithic, no, they're not. I mean, they're knocking those things out in, in Cairo like crazy. Yeah, but I, I've seen those. And so the, most of the ones that I saw, of course, I go back a long way. Those really looked very flimsy. I suspect now they probably look a lot better in terms mm-hmm. of, of, of how the forgeries are. Well, we will take another short break, and we will be back with this very fascinating discussion on illicit antiquities and forgeries uh, right after these words. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Among his other areas of expertise, my uh, guest today, Dr. Charles Stanish, who is the director of the Kotzen Institute of Archaeology at, at UCLA, is a, an esteemed authority on forgeries. And we have been discussing sort of the explosion of the forgery industry, if you will, in illicit antiquities and trade. And Charles, you've been telling us how sophisticated the forgers have become. And why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the more uh, major and earth, I won't say earth shattering, but some of the forgeries that have really captured uh, the public's attention and certainly the attention of the illicit dealers in antiquities. What are some of the, the highlights in this uh, industry? Well, I, you know, I suppose, you know, Piltdown Man is a famous one. I was just going to talk about that one. Yeah, yeah they're an academic fraud. Uh, but again, you know, the motives were, you know, passion and pride and you know evolutionary theory and all that but you also have the crystal skulls that have been that, that were really popular not that long ago the supposedly uh, Mayan and Aztec crystal skulls that give off energy and they're a major major uh, uh, new age phenomenon that, that people are really attracted to uh, one of the more famous ones was uh, was by a woman whose father was a was a swashbuckling archaeologist, and I'm embarrassed to say I momentarily forgot his name. But he was an English fellow running around in the uh, uh, the Yucatecan and Belizean forest, and he she claimed that on her birthday she discovered a crystal skull, and that it would that it could not have been manufactured by uh, modern technology; that it was only something that would have been able to be polished the way it was by hundreds right. of years of hands, you know, wet, wet hands and wet sandy hands, you know, uh, polishing it. And the initial tests in, in the 50s by, um, by a glass company, I think it was, you know, said, yes, there's no way that we can figure out how this is done. There's no modern technology and there's no evidence of striations or whatever. And, and so that, that went for a long time. And then in uh, just in the last few years, the uh, curator uh, from the Smithsonian Institution was able to use very sophisticated uh, microscopes. And they were able to get in and they could see the striations from diamond drills that were only available since the late 19th century. Of course. And, yeah. And then when you looked at the type of drill, it had to have been done probably in the like in the 1950s and 40s. So you're able to definitively say that that wasn't real. And so you have uh, you have these icons uh, you know throughout throughout the world the the Getty Kouros is probably the most modern uh, case that's most famous. Uh, they paid a lot of money for it and, and there certain scientists said that it had it could not have been forged because of the the patina or, or the um, the the surface of the coating, it, was, yeah. the coating was too old. And then, as I understand it, I may be wrong, but some after after the geophysicist said this could not possibly have been 
reproduced. Some some farmers said, "Hey, why don't you come on down? Let let us show you how it's done, or something like that." And they were able to reproduce it. So we're not really sure, but but the idea is that that, that these that these uh that, that these iconic uh, fakes, you know, really really tend to stand out. Well, but this is an interesting one. Patinas in particular. I mean, uh, our knowledge of the antiquity of patinas is is still at an early stage. I mean, uh, rock varnish and that type of thing. I would imagine that that would be a tough one to crack for a forger to uh, to replicate a patina that uh, that was say naturally weathered. Or is that also something that that uh, they can they can get to? They they can make some pretty good patinas. There's recipes out there on the internet if you want to. Go really? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, again, it 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 all depends. One one suspects that, that if you have a really good recipe, you're not going to put it out there. Uh, uh, but but yeah, we we found objects that look really good on the surface, and then when you when you drill them, you find out that the jade is from British Columbia that was supposedly ah. a Neolithic Chinese. In fact, the the, the Chinese artists tell me. That they prefer the British Columbian jade over the Chinese jade because it's easier to work with and it's a little more, in some cases, pretty. So that's one easy way because you can you can just do a chemical test on that and get the sourcing of it. So what about training future generations of experts to detect this? I mean, uh, are there formal schools? Is there a way? I mean, what's happening in these places? I would imagine that places like the Getty would actually have been alarmed many years ago and and probably mm-hmm. has an army of experts who have to sort of brush up on their science and, and, and sort of get into new ways of detecting these types of forgeries or is, is, is there something yeah. developing in that sense? Or no, it's working. It is yeah, working. What you have to do is you have to get away from the old idea of absolutely yes or absolutely no uh-huh. and think in probabilistic terms. And so I, I, have a, uh, I have a very close friend who has an authentication service and you know what what she does is it's like you get your experts, you, you, you put them together, and you say, yeah, there's a 95% probability that this is real. Uh, you can eliminate pieces as being fake, but it's, it's, it's a little hard to say this is absolutely unequivocally real unless you saw it come out of the ground, and if you did, it's illegal to probably own it and the, at this day and age. Uh, so, yes, when you bring together uh, many people, not just one, and you get away from the kind of old-fashioned, I'm the boss, I know everything model to right. more, more right. of a cooperative, you know, let's, let's arrive at a consensus and talk about this. The experts do tend to come to much, much better conclusions if you have, you know, two or three people uh, call, uh, looking at it and bringing in their, their specific and their, their unique expertises. So, yeah, you can do it. I mean, you can authenticate these pieces. Well, I might so add kind of, that there's a yeah, whole... I'm sorry, there's a whole industry in manufacturing uh, certificates of authenticity. Right. And so you have people who sell you the paper, and, and uh, one, one thing that's a, a favorite technique of Peruvian looters is to wrap it up in newspaper from 1985 because there was a six-month period when the treaty between the U.S. Uh, and, and Peru was not valid, and, and technically you were allowed to export out of Peru. So <laughs> that you can still go to the looters, looters markets in, in, in Lima and Trujillo, and you can buy newspaper from 1985. It's very valuable, but they will sell you that. And so then you wrap it up and say, well, it came out of 1985. So you wouldn't believe the, the level of, uh, of, of sophistication that you're dealing with. 
So what you're saying is it's, it becomes like anything else in, in science and, and uh, sort of at the edge of, cutting edge of, of technology. It's sort of becoming an interdisciplinary exercise where you're essentially sort of reducing the area of gray, but you never really get there. You never get it to black and white, right? Yeah, you said it in 10 seconds. It took me 30, yeah, but yes, you said it extremely well. What you're doing is you're bringing together uh, all these people, and you're reducing the probability of it being yeah. false. Yeah, sort of oh. following the uh, trajectory of sports memorabilia in a way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're doing the yeah. same thing with the certificates of authenticity and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm just wondering. You know, there are people, and I, I imagine. I mean, I'm not in this in this world, but you have high-end art dealers and high-end people who engage in this kind of tra- in, in this kind of uh, I don't know they accumulate wealth this way that they mm-hmm. probably want to insist well I really need to know I mean I need to know is it or isn't and and yet they're getting probability answers and I, s- I expect that they're starting to accommodate that and get used to the fact that that's how it's going to get resolved in this day and age right well they're going to have to yeah I mean yeah if you want to be honest with your with your clients you're going to have to come in and say, well, this is a very high probability. You, you can absolutely say it's fake, but, it, but it's hard to prove it's absolutely authentic in, in a lot of cases. Sometimes you can. I mean, if I, if I take, you know, like, like stone, for instance, we have all these stone figurines. Uh, jade is really big right now. Uh, so you take a piece of jade from China and you mm-hmm. put it in a laser lathe that will give you an absolutely perfect reproduction of the thing that's being lasered, right? The lasers measure the nuances and then the lathe cuts it. And you get an absolutely perfect replica of the shape and you have the right chemical composition and then you dip it in something that gives us the proper patina. There is no way, there is no way to say this, you know, we're we're looking at the advent of 3D printing. That's going to be very interesting, right? When you're able to do... 3D printing of objects from from clay or something like that. So, you know, the thing is, for authenticity, you have to, you, know, you can you can eliminate stuff, but like I said, you got to bring in you got to bring in the pros and to bring in the art historians and the subjective value is just as important as the scientific analysis. And when you put all that together with the art historical and the scientific and the technical, yeah, you can say pretty pretty well what's going on. Are there commercial enterprises at this point that are specializing in this kind of work, trying to unravel these mysteries and uh, trying to become the authorities, if you will, to authenticate and and, and verify what what is suspiciously unoriginal? Is that going Uh, commercial? No, most of the authentication occurs uh, through the galleries and the dealers. Right. Uh, And then... Uh, there, there are some some companies coming up. Better that you could call them like aggregators. They realize that they can't do it all by themselves. That they may be expert in one or two areas, but what they'll do is they will go find the experts for you, and they'll get them to work as a team and put it together and, and make it happen. Uh, and those, that's just a very brand new industry. You don't see much of that yet, but that's really the way to go. Because you need to you need to have an independent voice. I mean, obviously the the dealer, uh, most dealers are honest and they want to want to do you know right by the law and by ethics. And they they, but they have an incentive. I mean, you know, you're holding something that could be a Picasso, you know. And if your subjective 
feeling is that it's real, you get a huge commission, and if your subjective feeling is not, you know. So there is a huge economic incentive to, to, to say yes to these things. Right, of course. And, and is there a trend now? I mean, is there, um, I guess, more and more of these uh, services uh, will crop up. It's very possible, I suppose, that you're going to get more and more coalitions of, of experts who will, uh, depending on what the nature of the object is, mm-hmm. will get together and provide that kind of service, possibly even on a commercial basis. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. It, it, they're raising the bar of due diligence. I mean, I, I predict within a very short period of time, when it used to be that you walked into a dealer, the dealer said, "Yes, the, this was purchased by uh, Amelia Vanderbilt, and we have the COA, and it's all good." Those days are <laughs> probably ending, and it's now going to be you go to the independent authentication service, who then brings in other people. And then right. you provide a probabilistic, uh, you know, uh, answer, which we're just going to have to learn to accept because that's kind of the way life is. It's usually not black and white. Well, of course not. And we will be back with our final segment with uh, Dr. Charles Stanish and the emergence of new elements in, in the forgery industry, if you will, after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you're listening to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein to be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are discussing forgery, archaeology, and the explosive growth 
of the forgery industry, if you will, especially as it relates to illicit trade and antiquities. And my special guest is Dr. Star- Charles Stanish, who is the director of the Kotzen Institute of Archaeology at the University of California, Los Angeles. And we were talking during the break about what we always were very often discuss on the program, which is the clash between archaeology and religion, and specifically fundamentalist religion. And we were talking about that age-old conflation of archaeology and uh, basically, basically paleontology vis-a-vis humans and dinosaurs. And Charles, take it from here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the forgers are smarter than we are. That's what we have to accept. And they also meet market need. Uh, and so there is one market out there, a rather large market, that is within the in the fundamentalist uh, Christianity community who believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. And they have two big problems. One is dinosaurs that the Bible did not mention, and giants that the Bible did mention. And so you have a lot of uh, forgers out there who will produce little tiny dinosaurs with humans next to them, and they make them look like they're ancient, and they do it in the in the style of a, an Olmec or an Aztec thing, and it's extremely cute. And then you have uh, <laughs> you have people who have the have the uh, the giants, right? And they 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 manufacture these giant skulls. I happen to work in the coast of Peru, in the Paracas culture, and the peoples of ancient Peru at around 3,500 years ago. Uh, would would elongate their skulls naturally. They would uh, basically shape the kid's head uh, with a cranial deformation when the kid was young, and it was considered beautiful, right? And so these people come in and they forge these like massively long skulls to make them look like uh, uh, giants. And so they say, see, when the Bible said that there were giants before the flood, you know, here we found the giants. And they also have uh, uh, rocks from. Uh, uh, a city in Peru that are carved with, uh, you know, pictures of giants and dinosaurs on them, and they claim that they're, you know, like 5,000 years old or something like that. It's extremely, extremely interesting. So when you go ahead and confront people with this information, and how, how do they respond? I mean... Uh... Well, you know, the world is divided up, in my view, between people who are ruled by ideology and... And they have, they already know the answers a priori, you know, before they see the evidence. And other people, a much smaller amount that are, you know, look at the evidence and, and they, they make their decisions based upon, upon the evidence. So if you go to a, 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 a climate warming denialist and you give him or her data that shows that the world's getting hotter, you know, they, they will come up with some reason why it's not true. It's the same thing with people, uh, you know, who believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, it is true, and, and so the role is not to, you know, prove it wrong. The role is to show how, how the evidence fits it. And, of course, they simply say, no, it's not true what you say. It's, you know, you're... So, I mean, I mean that's the problem. There's always a little bit of element of doubt in everything we do. Yeah, and, sure. um, Yeah. And so they just sort of dig in as they... Uh... Yeah. And get fortified. I got one of my questions here, Charles, and, and this is something that 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 has a lot of ramifications going forward. Is this where we started out on the program? This was unanticipated, probably, and the internet as a vehicle sort of uh, took over 
and basically directed the argument and, and, and changed effectively the market forces. Do you see anything, can, I guess you can't or, or can you, see where this forgery market is going going forward and what will the Internet do and is there another vehicle that will may change the, the market supply and de- demand uh, balance, if you will? Yeah, great, great observation. I it can only uh, it can only uh, you know increase. I, I can't see how it can go back. Uh, if you look at numismatics, I mean, it's almost impossible to buy a real coin on on eBay anymore or on any other online market. They're all most of them are are counterfeits, you know, and they're very good. They're very good counterfeits. So you know, where do you go I, at a certain point? Um, the question of authenticity. Uh, will become, you know, one of the key things we look at. Yeah, I guess one yeah. of the question is, are we going to have policing of this? I mean, is the net? I mean, a lot of people are asking oh. this generally. Is the net going to be policed? I don't know anything about that, but you know, it's something that you know is probably a possibility somewhere down the road. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're breaking, you know, certain civil laws if you clearly sell somebody a fraud. Yeah, uh, but on the other, you know, this is what's interesting. Is a little interesting twist. If you are in, let's say, Peru, and you sell someone in the United States uh, a a fake moche vessel for, mm-hmm. and you can buy it for you know, like a hundred dollars plus shipping and handling, you know, and they send it through <laughs> DHL. It's hilarious. Like you would, yeah, right. Uh, and 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 so, <clears throat> if it's not a fake, if it's, if it's not real, you haven't violated a law. By importing right. it, even if you think it's real, and if you're the Peruvian, you have violated uh, Peruvian civil law. But how is the person in the U.S. going to go file a suit against the person in Peru, you know, for a hundred dollars? That's not going to happen. So sure. that's a, 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 effectively it's unenforceable. There is no risk in selling a fake as if it's real over the internet and shipping it anywhere in the world, even if. The authentic piece would violate all these different uh, laws. There's no risk. So you're in this very, very cloudy, muddled area where you don't really know where to go on this thing. Yeah. Every every replica by U.S. law sold in the United States has to have an R on it or replica. Aha. Uh-huh. If you have okay. a counterfeit coin, for instance, if if you make a replica twenty dollar gold eagle, nineteen seventeen or something like that. It has to have an R on it, but but the forgers make the R, you know, really easy to rub off. <laughs> yeah, they use a different composition. They make it low relief, and and then you can can kind of rub then, it off. Yeah, and, just just by by just by by handling or yeah, or by rubbing. <laughs> They so, probably know the composition of the oils in your hand that's going to actually cause it to, to sort of fade out. Oh, yeah. Oh, here's a good one. I just remembered. This is really fascinating. In the 19, uh, around 1915, the Chinese government asked the United States government for help in manufacturing coinage. So the U.S. government uh, didn't want to spend too much money. said, oh, we have these old machines that right. stamped out our coins. Uh, in the 19th century, we're not using them anymore, so we'll give them to you. In the 1950s, uh, some uh, Chinese entrepreneur, even in communist China, bought these and began stamping out uh, U.S. coins of the period using the exact, the presses that made the coins here. So they're, they're, it's, it's perfect in every way because those are the original coin-making machines. Of course. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. 
And so you had a ready set uh, operation that could just go ahead and perpetuate this thing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Uh, this is this is really quite something. So uh, I guess you have to just sort of be vigilant, or as vigilant yes. as you possibly can be. And uh, I suppose the the most uh, most obvious answer going forward is we really don't know where it's going to go. And as in the in the case that we talked about, you have to stay one step ahead, right? I mm-hmm. mean. Yeah. Make sure that then, then you get these, you know, the civil civil rights infractions and that kind of thing, which, mm-hmm. you know, is one of the bigger topics that uh, the internet people are embroiled in. Where do you where do you draw the line? Well, I want to thank my special guest uh, Charles Stanish for uh, spending this lovely hour with us and discussing uh, yet another critical issue of archaeological ethics. And uh, we will have additional programs like this in the future, especially with the advent of technology and sophisticated methods for uh, detection. I guess you should really just sort of have to say one step ahead of the illicit marketplace going forward. And uh, thank you all for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.